The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The delinquency rate for subprime auto loans has risen to a rate that is worse than during the financial crisis. Here to help us understand consumer credit is Amy Cruz Cutts, chief economist for Equifax, joining us from Washington, D.C. Amy, thank you very much for being with us. For, tell us your perspective on the health of consumer credit right now. Well, it's um, some of it is awesome and, and doing quite well. I think many consumers got the religion of debt management after the Great Recession. And so from the majority of them, I, I have no concerns at all. Um, and then on the flip side, as you just mentioned, you know, auto loan uh, performance has not gone as well as we might have thought. This, uh, you know, we still have a great economy. Uh, jobs are being added every month. And normally we would expect delinquencies to be falling. So that's, that is a little bit of a troublesome spot. So I want to pick up on that, the fact that, uh, you know, certainly mortgage debt is much lower than it used to be, but we are seeing, uh, at least on a, certainly on a relative uh, basis, as well as an absolute one. But in other areas, the amount of debt really is noteworthy, and the increases in delinquencies and defaults is also a little alarming, given, given where we are in the credit cycle. What are you expecting the consequence of that to be? What's the implication here? Well, it, we dug deep into this to try to figure out was it because they opened the floodgates, as it, as it might be, uh, and let in a, a bunch of um, you know uncreditworthy borrowers? And what we found was that the majority of lenders, particularly the big guys, so banks, credit unions, and the captive auto finance, actually have gotten very tight with credit. So in recent uh, quarters, they've gotten more reserved, and their performance is showing it. What we're seeing, though, on the flip side is that independent finance companies, so not associated with the car manufacturer, expanded their credit risk uh, off and did so in a way that, that has greatly increased the indexes that you just mentioned of, of delinquency. So it really has to do with where the borrowers are getting the money and perhaps the quality of the borrowers that are, that are being allowed in uh, under those loans. So it's, again, it's not as, as easy as one spot versus another, but what bothers me about that is that these are likely borrowers who are at the, at the very fringe of the economy. And so um, whereas, you know, a prime credit borrower, if they make a mistake, isn't going to be such a big deal, uh, somebody really at the edge, it, it could really throw their lives into financial catastrophe. So that's the part I worry about. How what much, a, go ahead. I beg your pardon. How much of a strain <laughs> do you think the uh, rise in short-term rates will put on some of these borrowers, particularly the credit card sector, because they uh, end up rolling things over? 
Yeah, so like auto loans are fixed rate. Most of the mortgages today are fixed rate. So other than new uh, entrance into the, into the borrowing market, uh, there will be very little impact. On the credit card side, um, a large number of people are the gas and grocery transactors, and so the, they would have very little impact. Where it will probably have the largest impact is, again, in the subprime sector or the near-prime sector, where borrowers are more likely to be using the credit cards as credit as opposed to a transaction uh, means. And so they're already paying very high rates on those loans. The only saving grace there is that their credit limits are usually very low, so they may be um, you know, $500 or $1,000 in debt with, with a high interest rate as opposed to $10,000 in debt with a high rate. So um, it will have an impact, and it will slow some of the purchases that they might make. They may also move more to things like um, layaway plans uh, to the extent that the retailers are still offering those. So there are some other options. On the car buying side, they can buy a smaller car. On the home buying side, it's much harder because there's so much competition for the existing inventory that it may actually just just delay or altogether wipe out uh, homeownership opportunities. Do consumers actually have the money to purchase these homes or at least put the down payments forward? Because it seems as though consumer spending is rising at a slower pace. Yeah, it it depends so much on on where they are in their um, sort of earnings life cycle. And I think it's one of the reasons why we're seeing the statistics on young families you know, the millennial generation, uh, delaying homeownership longer than, than the prior generations did. And it's been getting longer each generation. But I think one of the reasons for that is them uh, taking the time to, to get the money. And another part of that is that in many cases, they don't want to buy a starter home. They want to buy sort of their their what we normally would have thought of as a step-up home. Uh, and part of that is pressed by the inventory. Again, we're not building smaller homes, so it's harder to get those those little ones. You know, the reason why I think that this is such an important area is because consumer confidence and consumer spending has really driven the economic recovery. And as we see delinquencies and defaults increase, albeit still historically low, you just have to wonder, is that consumer running out of steam? I mean, is there sort of a a bigger important message here uh, that you're seeing? Well, I'll tell you, one of the, the more intriguing pieces of this is, as you know, we're in a retail crisis, and many stores are, are struggling, and, and for various reasons. Some would say it's the online presence of, of some of the, the big guys, but I would also say that a lot of it has to do with their debt structuring, how they those companies borrowed money uh, over the past 10 to 15 years that's now coming due that they can't resolve. What's important about that for the consumer is that we do see in um, locations as well as um, broadly based like in the asset-backed securities for securitized portfolios of retail store credit. When a store announces, uh, when a company announces either a bankruptcy or a closing, consumers respond by going delinquent on those cards. Now, what the consumers may not realize is that they still owe that money. The creditors to those organizations surely are going to go after that, that money. But, um, you know, it's a very bad consumer behavior, but I think the consumers in some minds are thinking, wow, you know, this company just went bankrupt, declared bankruptcy, so I don't have to pay them back. So and you think so this we're is... seeing weird behavior that way. So this is one reason, perhaps, why the delinquencies are going up, in other words? Yes. Yes. Savings rates in the United States. According to Bankrate, about 20% of Americans save absolutely nothing. Another fifth say that they save just 5% of their income or less. Do they need to save more money for things such as retirement or indeed any financial emergency? Um, absolutely. And the hard part of that is that um, 
you know, if we look on the flip side, that wages, real wages, really haven't risen that much, and we're we're celebrating rising wages today because they're up around two percent. But if you think we've been below two percent on wage increases, but for the past ten years we've run two percent on inflation, the real value of the money people bring home is is less and less, and so savings out of that is very hard. Now we can quibble about whether the savings. Um, numbers are are accurate. One of the problems that I have in looking at this is that I might look at a study, for example, by one of the largest um, um, mutual fund companies, and they'll say, oh, the average balance of somebody is is $50,000, but that's only at their shop. So maybe there's more money out there than we think um, through these 401k plans or, or other savings instruments. But the bottom line is that too many people end up at retirement with a very small cushion and Social Security is not enough. Right. It's great maybe if you're only going to live 10 years, but if you're going to live 30 years, which is more the average expectancy now, it makes it, it, makes it very hard. Amy Cruz-Cuts, thank you so much for being with us. Amy Cruz-Cuts, Chief Economist for Equifax. You know, the aggregate household debt balances are now nearly half a trillion more than they were at the prior peak back in 2008. There is a dilemma right now in stock markets. Is it a good thing that U.S. companies are spending so much of the money that they're saving from the tax cut on share buybacks and dividends? Here to answer that, Barry James. He is president and chief investment officer of James Investment Research, which oversees about $7 billion and is based in Ohio, but joins us here in our 1130 studios today. So, Barry, I was looking at this Goldman Sachs research showing that the highest proportion of companies' cash is going to toward share buybacks and dividends, uh, while a much lower percentage is going to plant improvements and salary increases, et cetera. Does this concern you? And one uh, one form it does con- concern us, uh, Lisa, because you eventually need organic growth in order to sustain not just the economy, but the, the markets themselves. The other side of it, though, is as a shareholder, we don't mind share, <laughs> share buybacks in any way, shape, or form. And we've done studies that show the companies that have the higher levels of share buybacks, their their stocks actually outperform, so over the next six to 12 months. So uh, that's a positive thing. And also getting more money back in terms of dividends is, is positive as well from the shareholder standpoint. But again, it's not a, a sustainable model. All right, let's talk about the fund that you run. This is the uh, Golden Rainbow Fund, the symbol GLRBX. I note that it is balanced funds so that you can have stocks as well as bonds, and you have a boatload of treasuries uh, in, in the fund right now. Tell us, why do you have that? And then we can talk about some individual uh, company names. Sure. The objectives of the fund are growth and income, but preservation of capital in declining markets. And you did mention we do our own research every weekend. We do an analysis of the markets and try to measure risk. And been doing it for 45 years. This isn't something new for us. And so we adjust the allocation between stocks and bonds based on where we see the risk levels, both in stocks and bonds. Um, we see from the, the stock side right now that uh, maybe the foundation is a little weak at the moment. Uh, prices are fairly high. Uh, you've got the tax cuts, which we talked about, tend not to be very promising the year after the tax cut is actually implemented, uh, which is right now. They only tend to see about an average of 2% return. And, of course, we've got uh, too much optimism. So we've kind of gotten into this uh, 
I don't know, trading pattern at the moment. And one thing when you're in a period maybe of correction, having some bonds is very, very uh, helpful in terms of stabilizing the portfolio. Obviously, you're not going to make a lot in terms of, of interest payments. But again, the key is preserving capital in, in declining markets. And that's one of the things we try to, to set ourselves aside on. So when did you most recently shift to a greater allocation to safety, to bonds? Well, that was uh, the latter part of last year. Um, we had um, uh, lowered the amount of equities we have. And I don't want to give the impression we're market timers because we, we, we know that that doesn't work for us. But we do try to shift uh, based upon risk levels. And so we've gotten down to about 40%. Now we're, you know, with the market down a little bit, we've been doing a little bit of buying. So, but you had been down to forty percent bonds, and now you've been buying. Well, forty percent stocks. Forty percent stocks. <laughs> yes. And uh, so now you're buying stocks. That's what I was going right. to ask. Where That's are you right. now? I mean, are you basically more risk on? Do you think that the values have declined enough? To be uh, to, to prove attractive at this point. Yes, um, that that's the a very interesting time we're in. I think we're in a, a great shift, if you will, a paradigm shift. Uh, it's been all large cap and growth uh, for you know probably about ten years. And what we've seen even this year, the market went down in the first quarter, and small caps didn't go down as much. And so I think that shift is coming into smaller caps. That's one of the areas we've been moving into. Uh, also, we call them bargains. People talk about value, whatever you want to call it, um, but. But those have been ignored for quite some time, and um, they tend to work very, very well uh, most of the time, and they hadn't. So I think both of those are coming into into to view. It's almost like 1999, the year in 2000, the Nasdaq fell 38%, and the small cap value went up 22%. Not saying that this is 1999 and 2000, but this is the type of circumstances I think could be unfolding. And so when the market pulls back, do a little buying. When the market jumps up, maybe do a little trimming. Let's talk about one stock uh, in the portfolio, Advanced Energy Industries. They're based in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. What do you like about this company? How'd you find it, first of all? <laughs> that's always a great, great question. We have clients in Fort Collins, but no, that's not how I found it. Um, we, um, with, with our research, we try to rate uh, securities, how closely they meet our criteria of good value, of good historical earnings, not the projected earnings. We, we haven't found a lot of use for that. And then the price appreciation, we like to see it outperforming the market. So this meets all of those, uh, all of those criteria. You know, this is uh, one that works in um, engineered power conversion uh, type uh, area, uh, almost a little techie, if you will, but a, a low PE of only 14. Um, the earnings year over year, about 33% increase. Uh, so uh, cash flow is increasing rapidly. Uh, cash flow from operations is strong. Uh, no real debt. Uh, so it's got lots of those. And the other thing is it's number one in its market. Um, so it has about 40, 41% of that marketplace. So, um, And we talked about buying back shares. Guess what they're doing? They're buying back shares. I want to thank you very much for being with us. Insightful. We wish I had more time. We could talk about more of the details of the uh, of the fund. It's called the Golden Rainbow Fund. The symbol there is GLRBX. Barry James is the president and the chief investment research uh, officer of Barry uh, James Investment Research, helping to manage more than $7 billion of customer assets. Much appreciated. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. 
Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Russian President Vladimir Putin speaks with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The topic, Syria. Our topic, also Syria. Here to help us understand it is Larry Liebert. He is our national security editor for Bloomberg. Larry, lay down exactly or what we believe we exactly know right now about what's going on in the region and what what are some of the likely scenarios. Well, we do know uh, that the president toned down uh, his rhetoric a little uh, this morning, at least in terms of the timing of attack. He didn't, you know, saying, I didn't say exactly when and exactly whether. Uh, and there are high-level talks going on. Uh, in particular, in this case, we're seeing the U.S. working with allies, uh, France and the U.K., France especially, uh, ready and willing uh, to uh, join in, if not take the lead, in uh, some sort of response to this uh, presumed uh, chemical attack. Uh, but there are others uh, offering some notes of caution. And uh, uh, just this morning, just a short while ago in his testimony, uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis appearing before uh, the House Armed Services Committee uh, said that the risk in this kind of thing is it getting out of control. Now, he was just he didn't say don't do it, uh, but he was pointing out uh, that with all of the maelstrom of uh, activity there with, with Russia there, with uh, Iran there, uh, with U.S. forces, with Turkey there, uh, that things could go awry in any kind of strike. Uh, uh, so that's a note of caution. Uh, he also, though, said that some things, uh, like a chemical attack, some things clearly require a response. You know, Larry, you talk about all the different voices, uh, whether it's General Mattis or President Trump's tweets uh, weighing in on this issue. Of course, we also have John Bolton, uh, who just recently took the helm as the uh, national security advisor to President Trump. His deputy uh, just quit or was pushed out, and there has been uh, quite a few exits from the department. How does that affect the U.S.'s response to some of these threats? Well, I think you're going to clearly have the, the uh, central national security uh, team, which now, uh, which uh, still includes Pompeo, uh, the newcomer, the nominee for state, uh, who's a CIA chief, uh, Secretary Mattis, uh, and uh, and uh, now Mr. Bolton uh, at the table, and they're backed up, I think, in particular by the U.S. military and its uh, its expertise. So, uh, you know, it is a time of tumult. Uh, there is a lot of uh, speculation, which uh, Pompeo uh, hit back at today in his confirmation hearing, uh, that these are hardliners. He, he said he rejected that uh, description, which so many would put on him. Uh, but uh, there's, there is a sense of change. There is a sense of a hard line coming. But there's also sort of a, co- a continuum of expertise uh, at the Pentagon and elsewhere. Larry, uh, I don't want to diminish anything having to do with the humanitarian aspect of the situation, but what is really the strategic interest of the United States in this? Well, that's uh, that's to some extent what uh, Secretary Mattis was saying. He was saying that there is a humanitarian goal sometimes to uh, to take some action, uh, and uh, obviously uh, there's also the strategic sense that. 
to the extent that uh, President Trump, who's clearly torn on this uh, issue of Syria, to the extent he'd like the U.S. to pull out, uh, this is a, a message to Russia in particular, as well as the Syrian regime, uh, that the world community can't abide uh, a, a sort of a permanent free reign of terror in Syria. So uh, there is an argument that at some point you have to signal uh, a, a demand for some restraint. Uh, that, and and, I, and that's as far as it goes. But if you took a purely strategic view, as, as Matt has, uh, suggested, uh, if it wasn't a matter of such great outrage uh, over crossing this particular humanitarian line, uh, the U.S. probably wouldn't get involved. So uh, since you mentioned Mike Pompeo, who is currently testifying in front of Congress, uh, we should note some of the headlines that are coming out. People say uh, Pompeo did say that he spoke with Robert Mueller. He declined to provide details. Is this significant? Uh... It, because he declined to provide details, we're no, not entirely but, sure, but it does show you. I mean, he he would have talked to him in his in his uh, role as a CIA uh, director. Uh, he, the question is, uh, what exactly was Mueller uh, looking for from him? And clearly, uh, it, if nothing else, it is yet another reminder of the extraordinary breadth uh, and uh, reach of Mueller's investigation. Uh, which increasingly is uh, alarming and angering the president. Larry, any chance that uh, Mr. Pompeo is not confirmed as Secretary of State? There's a chance. You know, he was uh, handily confirmed for CIA. You know, he does. He is a former member of Congress. Uh, yet there are concerns uh, uh, about the State Department and its leadership and about, again, his hawkish views, even though he fought against that in his testimony today. Uh, he tried to address a lo- number of those things. Uh, first of all, he said that the U.S. would be very tough on Russia. Yeah. The time for softness is over, which seems a message to the president, too. Yeah. And uh, and and he, he vouched for the State Department. Department bureaucracy uh, than the dip- diplomats who have felt so abused under Rex right. Tillerson. So th- that will please some members, but whether it's enough to win him the uh, confirmation isn't yet clear. Larry Liebert, thank you so much for being with us. Larry Liebert, National Security Editor for Bloomberg. All right. Right now, taking a look at West Texas Intermediate Crude, it is down about eight-tenths of a percent, a drop of 58 cents a barrel to $66.24. And here to tell us why this is all happening is our own Mike McGlone. He's an expert when it comes to everything commodities. He's our commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mike, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming into the studio. Uh, OPEC today saying that uh, those production cuts, yes, they are working. They are in place. But U.S. shale producers... They're saying, just go ahead and pump the oil. Yeah, well, that's the that's the battle that's going to continue, and I have a suspicion that OPEC's probably going to lose. They need continued situations, what we're happening happening right now. Missiles flying in the Middle East, trade tensions, geopolitical t- tensions. You need that to keep oil higher because that supply from the U.S. is going exponential. And don't have to take my word for it. Take the word for the market. The amount of commercial um, commercial shorts in the market is parabolic, which means people are bringing on more production in the U.S. and it's being somewhat hedged. 
Also, you look at crude oil, it's, it finally got above that 666 level. Thank God we don't have to look at that level anymore. But I think it's a very, it's one of the most risky commodities. I'm bullish on commodities, but crude oil is the one that's most likely to mean revert, i.e. it's very expensive. It has supply coming on. And you look at this week, aluminum's up twice as much as crude oil on yeah. the week on these geopolitical tensions, which it should be. But crude oil, it's a bull market. It's just... It has to deal with supply, too much supply. So, Mike, we just came off the three, the biggest three-day jump in crude values since December 2016. A lot of this did have to do with geopolitical risk. I'm wondering, let's say there was some kind of disruption of production in the Middle East akin to what people were pricing in. Would that be enough to justify how much prices increased. It, it's absolutely, it's how do you quantify that? It's necessary, you kind of need it because the situation remains the same. The US is now importing, our net imports are now only about 6 million barrels a day. That's the least in, was it five or six decades? And it's trending lower, it's the lowest, it's continuing to go that way. And they have to, OPEC and Russia has to offset that with more cuts. So it's that battle, which, which has been favorable. It's been good. You got crude oil to certain levels. It's getting a little expensive here. And now we're starting to hear worries about a little demand destruction. But that's also the big picture in this, in this country. There's just no demand. I mean, the demand's not there is, but it's not picking up like it did in the in the old days, you know, when we had, you know, all the gas, um, the, the gas guzzlers. I mean, I drive a Volt and a lot of people do that now. We just don't have to worry about that incremental demand anymore in this country. Really? You drive? I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> what made you do that? Well, you get 120 miles per gallon. The government subsidized it, and a lot of people are going that way. It's where that trend's going. Everybody knows that. Certainly in the in industrial countries like ours, the demand's really coming from the developed countries. We know that, like China and and India and things. But that major shift from the world's largest demand factor in crude oil is getting is getting, becoming more of a factor. Now, I'm, I'm I've been bullish on crude oil, but at these levels, it's just very expensive. If you look at the trend, just the last two years, the bull market, it's had pretty significant $10 corrections. We're a bit overdue from that. And unless we get more bad you know, ge geopolitical data out of the Middle East, it's going to make crude oil more susceptible. Okay. But you know, the reason I ask you about being in your vault <laughs> is uh, while you're driving in your vault, you're not going to be subject to the increase in gasoline prices, which we're seeing in the United States. Tell me, why is the price of gasoline you look around; it's over three bucks. Even yeah. though the average they're saying two seventy-five. I mean, come on, you f you find it's difficult to find gas for under three dollars a gallon. We're also walking into the summer blend season, and summer prices are always higher because you have to use a summer blend, so that'll kick it up a little bit. But my indications from here, unless you get more tensions out of Middle, Middle East, like uh, Lisa mentioned, you basically need that to keep these prices higher. So after the summer's over, after we get past that blend season, unless we can get really good reasons for cutting from these producers who actually need the money, <laughs> we can, they only gonna go so long, Crude oil prices should have a tendency to probably peak out. The, the difference is for investors in crude oil, they have backwardation now. Backwardation means if you're a buyer and holder of crude oil, you get that, you get positive re, um, return, which you did in the past. You used to have to pay for that role. Now it's positive. So, Mike, just real quick, which country in the Middle East is most key to watch uh, with respect to oil prices right now? Oh, uh, we well, it's right now. It's the, the when you see headlines of Saudi Arabia and missiles. 
right away that means crude oil gets bid and missiles flying over Riyadh. So that's uh, you know the other other countries are more peripheral, but Saudi Arabia Arabia is the biggest producer. And when I see see that, I would expect crude oil to be up ten percent, and it's only up six percent. Part of the reason this week is it's already very stretched. Yeah. And aluminum, look at aluminum, it was. At its 52-week average, so in in a bull market, so it had a lot more room to go up, and that's yeah. kind of I look at it technically, and then open the fundamentals. Mike McLone, we always love having you. Thank you so much for being with us. Mike McLone is a commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, and of course, aluminum jumping in part due to the news out of Russia and Rusal uh, being sanctioned by the U.S., possibly cutting off its supplies. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.